There's something really beautiful and um, really powerful about giving voice to uh, chanting the refuges and precepts. I was just struck by that this evening as we did this together. And, you know, it may be something that we, we sort of, we have the habit, we know this is what we do on these nights. And, and I think it's really worth reflecting on the, the power of this commitment in our lives this uh, intention to live as harmlessly as possible, it's, this is no small thing in the world. And if everybody lived this way, the world would be a, a hugely different, vastly different place if everyone had this commitment and took refuge really in these things that are true refuges and wisdom and the truth of things and, and the community And this is such a stress, is such a um, foundation for our practice. And the Buddha spoke of the organic, natural way that, that this leads through non-remorse and, and joy and gladness and so forth to the very highest. It's, it's really the basis for our practice and our practice unfolds based on this commitment. So... I think it's something to really, really reflect on our commitment to the living this way. It's such a beautiful, powerful thing to do. Not the subject for tonight's talk, but I had to get it out there in the moment. There's a powerful, and I think uh, one could say kind of a visionary statement that the Buddha made that um, really provides an important kind of context for our practice when we come on retreat and and just in our lives. He said that the mind, the heart, the mind is inherently, your mind, my mind, inherently radiant, pure, luminous. Use this word luminous, but it's because of visiting forces. Often this is described, translated as adventitious defilements that have the function of obscuring this clarity, that this is why we, why we suffer. And these visiting forces, we could say that these are the various manifestations of what are, are called the three unwholesome roots, these unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. And all these different ways that these manifest in, our, in the mind stream, in our hearts and minds as aversion, ill will, Fear, doubt, desire, dullness, stubbornness, and all these various manifestations of these unwholesome roots. But there's a positive side to this statement is, is that these forces that come are just visitors. You know, they're not intrinsically, inherently who we are. And I think it's important to, to reflect on this and keep this in mind because they may show up quite a bit. They're going to show up over the course of our practice in our lives. And even though they may come at times quite often, they are just visitors. And this luminous nature of the mind is ultimately not affected by these visiting forces. They may temporarily obscure this clarity, this luminosity. That's their function, they do this. But they don't change the fundamental nature of the mind, of the heart. 
you could liken it to the sky or open space, you know, in the sky, day like today, for example, you know, clouds come and they obscure the, the clarity of the sky in a sense. But the sky isn't ultimately affected by that. And when the clouds pass, then the, the clarity of the sky returns. It's there. It was there the whole time. But these forces show up quite a lot at times. And we can feel discouraged. We can take it personally, feel as though somehow it's our fault. We judge ourselves as though if we were doing our job right, if we were any good as meditators, they wouldn't show up. We have a a beast is joining us. Living in the walls, perhaps. <laughs> winter, winter time in Barry. Mm-hmm. So part of what we do, part of what our practice involves, what it entails, is reconnecting with this luminous clarity of mind. In a way, you could say it's a, a rediscovery of, of who we really are underneath habitual patterns of reactivity and conditioned mental habits that, that have often obscured this clarity of mind and limited what we limited and diminished what we think we're capable of, what we believe that we're capable of in our lives. And so we need to know what to do when these forces, visiting forces come. Because it's gonna come a lot and it's not a sign of failure and it's it's a natural part of this process of purification as we walk this path. And so the more clarity and kindness and compassion we can bring to bear, the more wisdom that we can bring to bear, the better off we're going to be. And we can learn to relate to these things that come from a place of strength and, and some ease and in a skillful way that allows them to actually become a vehicle for freedom. And this points to maybe the most visionary teaching of the Buddha, I think, really the core of his teaching and and the most visionary. He said, I teach only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. Actually two things, I guess. But it goes to the heart of what's possible for us, what's possible through this practice. There's this full acknowledgement that, that stress and suffering that these do exist in our lives in the world but it points to this possibility that there's a, an end to it, a freedom. And this serves as a framework for relating to our experience, not so much in terms of, of good and bad and right and wrong and what we like, what we don't like, what we want, what we don't want, and all the usual ways that we tend to relate to a life, to experience. A lot of the time we relate in this way, but we relate to things in terms of of suffering and the end of suffering. It's like a lens that we can look at experience through. And we see, we look at things in terms of what leads to stress and suffering in our lives and what leads to freedom, what leads to the end of this. We'll see that mindfulness, wisdom, kindness, compassion, these lead to the end of suffering and the forces of aversion, ill will, of greed, of delusion, these lead to suffering. 
And so instead of seeing these difficult energies that, that will arise at times in our practice as bad or wrong or somehow as, as a sign of weakness or failure on our part, we see them simply in terms of suffering and, and see them as impersonal factors that, that have arisen due to conditions and that pass when, when conditions change. And if we relate in this way, then there's a possibility of transformation and, and freedom there. And so the Buddha listed, spoke about five ways. I know we're all quite familiar with these. Five ways that these unwholesome roots show up, that they manifest. Called the five hindrances, the nivaranas in Pali. These are five qualities, experiences that come to visit and they're not easy to be with and they function to obscure, to hinder, to cloud, at times to really envelop the mind obscure this radiant, luminous clarity of mind. But I think it's worth revisiting these to really look at these again, because I know for myself, sometimes I'll find myself struggling in practice on retreat, and, and then I'll remember, oh yeah, oh, this, is, this is a hindrance. A hindrance has arisen. It's as though I will have forgotten these so even though they, they may feel like something that we know very well, I think it's worth, worth looking at them again. There's a teaching in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha described how they function. I think this is a very um, important way of looking at these. He said, when we attend carelessly to them, these hindrances are makers of blindness They cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from Nibbana. So it's important to to note that he said, when we attend to them carelessly. So this points to the possibility that one could attend carefully to them, see into their empty, impermanent nature no longer fall into delusion about them. And in this way, they can begin to lose their power over us. They lose their grip on our minds and hearts. But we need to really recognize them. We need to recognize and name them, remind ourselves how they function, how they manifest and function, and train ourselves to relate to them carefully, wisely. And the way they manifest, it ranges from quite dramatic to miserable to just slightly unpleasant or annoying. It's a whole range. Sometimes they're strong. Sometimes they're they're just kind of an annoying arising. And when they're present, their function is to disconnect us from experience. They function to, as an obstacle to intimacy with life. So I'll list them. So the first one is desire for sense pleasures, various forms of the wanting mind, aversion or ill will, this not wanting, ways that we're in contention with experience, restlessness and worry, this kind of agitated state in the mind and body, excess of energy, Sloth and torpor, dullness, 
sleepiness, this unwillingness, inability to connect, and skeptical doubt, kind of uncertainty, inability to make decisions, to, to move. And there are five similes or images that are given in the texts that describe how, how they function to cloud and obscure the, the heart, the mind. And in, this, in these uh, similes, there's an image of, of a bowl of water that one is trying to use as a mirror to see a reflection in this bowl of water. And so desire for sense pleasures is likened to a bowl of water into which colored dyes have been mixed. These different colored dyes placed into this bowl of water. And we, we would, wouldn't be able to see a reflection in water that's colored this way. And in the same way, this desire for sense pleasures colors our perception. We can't see clearly. We're, we're fascinated by the colors, you could say. Aversion or ill will is likened to a bowl of water that's been placed on a fire and heated until it's seething and boiling. Couldn't see one's reflection in the boiling, seething water. It's agitated by this heat, the heat of anger, the heat of ill will, of aversion. Sloth and torpor is likened, described as being like a bowl of water that's covered with muck, with pond scum, like algae or pond scum. There's this thick matted growth on the surface and you can't see clearly. It's, you could almost picture it like trying to swim through that thick muck, scum on a pond. Restlessness and worry is described as being like a bowl of water that's been whipped up and stirred by strong winds and it's agitated, the surface is choppy. Can't see the reflection in there. And doubt is likened to a bowl of water in which mud has been stirred up, mud clouding the clarity of the water. No reflection visible in that. And so just like the mind is not affected ultimately by the hindrances, In the similes, the natural clarity of the water is not changed by these conditions. They're visiting forces and and the dye or the mud could settle or be filtered out or the scum could be skimmed off the surface of the water. One could remove the fire, the heat, and the water will settle and become still and clear. And, And when the winds of agitation, if these die down, then the water becomes calm and mirror-like again. So the key to working with any of these, of course, is mindfulness and this ability to recognize and name them. I think it's so important to actually name them. It's, we gain a power over, over them by naming them. It's like in the shamanic traditions that one, if one can name one's adversary, one has a power if you know their true name. And if we can recognize and name them in this way, we can gain, gain a power over them and trans, begin to transform them from obstacles to meditation to objects of meditation. We start to see how we get caught by them and how we can find some freedom when they're present. So I'll go through these, these uh, hindrances, at least briefly, each one, hopefully get through them, talk a little bit about how they show up and ways that we might work with them. So the first one, desire for sense pleasures. 
This is such a strongly conditioned force in the mind. I mean, this is really these different manifestations of the wanting mind. This is really the the force that drives samsara, that keeps us bound to this endless wandering. And it's a deeply conditioned response to that which we experience as pleasant, what we like. And in the very strongest forms, it manifests all the kinds of obsessive, addictive patterns and habits where we're consumed and there's this endless pursuit, this craving, intense craving, the feeling that one must have it, we must have it. And it often creates an attitude of if only in our mind and heart. You know, if only I had this, then I'd be happy. This is really strong in the culture. You know, this conditioning, if, if we can just string together enough pleasant moments, enough pleasant experiences in a row with as, as few gaps as possible, then we'll be happy. And, and the whole world of advertising perpetuates this myth. You know, and all the pictures of the happy, beautiful people in the ads, you know, and, and if we get what they've got, then we'll be happy and we'll, we'll look like them and, and be just enjoying everything in that way. But there's this restlessness of having to get the next thing, if only we get this thing, whatever it might be. But the happiness that we might find through doing this, it doesn't last very long, does it? It's, it's very transient. It doesn't last any time at all. And then it's the next thing. We have to get the next thing. It doesn't work. And probably none of us would, would say, well, this is a good strategy if someone asked us, you know, is this a good way to proceed? We wouldn't say yes. But it's worth looking at how we spend our time here on retreat and, and in our lives outside of retreat. What do we really do? What do we turn to in life for happiness? And it's not to say that there's something wrong with having pleasant experiences. Sometimes people think that we're supposed to somehow not have pleasant things, you know, or there's this immediate fear about becoming attached to them. You know, life is not that easy and it's nice to have pleasant experiences. There's nothing wrong with that. But to think that, that true lasting happiness could be found through this pursuit is, it's endless and it's a setup for a life that's, that's both exhausting and it's ultimately doomed to frustration and failure because it's insatiable. We can never satisfy this wanting When we spend time on retreat, there's a chance to see how painful this energy can be. I remember someone coming and describing how their experience, they, they felt this energy as, as actually quite miserable. And this isn't the way we, we often, certainly not the way we're trained to relate to the wanting mind. You know, there's all these ads trying to get us to increase our wanting as though that were a good thing. We get fixated on the object and we don't notice the energy, which actually can be very painful, really can be quite miserable at times. This energetic kind of contraction in the heart, in the mind. I think we notice this especially, I notice it a lot when, when it passes. You know, if I'm caught in some wanting form of catalog mind of 
wanting something. And then when that passes, when you can put it down, you can see how, what a relief it is. We let go. Just as there were those similes of the, the bowl of water with the dye and the heat and the muck, there are similes that, that uh, illustrate what it's like when these hindrances are, are abandoned, when they're let go of, when they pass. And uh, freedom from sensual desire is likened to, to freedom from debt, having paid off one's debt. We can see how it, when, when we're in debt, there's this, this constant disturbance of this thing preying on the mind, this, this thing that's hanging over our head in that way. With this quality, when this quality of wanting in the mind is really strong, you know, there's this sense that we're not complete now, that the moment is not enough. There's no possibility for contentment in the moment. Our perception is limited and, and constrained by this. We only see the object of our wanting. So the key to working with it is mindfulness, to be able to recognize and name it. Starting with that, just doing that gives us some space. Right there, things open up a bit and, and we can break the spell. Possibility of not being so caught and identified there. And there's some choice then when we recognize it of how we can relate to it. But if we don't see it, there's no possibility for choice, for freedom. So bringing mindfulness and and when we start to, to really look at this energy and how it manifests and how it affects our mind and heart, it can bring us into a new relationship with the quality of renunciation in our lives. Renunciation is not, not well understood in our culture. You know, it's, it's not looked upon so well as though we're, we'd be denying ourselves some happiness, depriving ourselves or turning away from some happiness or joy that we might experience. But when we start to see the actual suffering, the miserable quality of this energy, the way that this feels and, and feel the relief when it passes, then we start to see how quality of renunciation is actually a great gift to ourselves. And letting go of this wanting, allowing this to, to fall away brings a real ease and relaxation, it can really lift a burden from us. Lift this debt, this quality of debt, this ease of not wanting so much more, so much more peaceful there. And then the second hindrance of ill will aversion takes many different kinds of forms. It manifests as anger, annoyance, irritation, boredom, fear, judging, criticizing voices in the mind and the heart. All these different ways that not liking, not wanting, resistance manifest. It's the mind saying no, no to experience. Often this is a reaction to what we experience as unpleasant. We can see this very clearly in, in our relationship to unpleasant physical sensations, painful feelings in the body. There can be this immediate reaction of, oh no, we don't want it, it shouldn't be happening, it's wrong, it's bad. 
to get rid of it. And there's, some, there's a natural response. This is a natural response in some ways. No one wants to, to have painful experiences. To, no one looks forward to that. But, but unpleasant sensations in the body and the mind, these are, are an unavoidable part of life. We can't set things up so that we only have pleasant experiences. That's not possible. And this quality of aversion, this reactivity, it's like, it's like shooting a second arrow. The Buddha spoke about it this way. It's like we have the dart of the painful feeling, but then we shoot a second dart into ourselves, a second arrow of reactivity, of aversion. There's different ways that it can, it can come about. You know, It can be this quality of ill will, of aversion, sometimes arises when we think about someone who's harmed us or harmed someone we care about. This memory we may have of some past difficulty or hurt, some situation in the past, a thought about the past. It's not happening right now, but we remember it. We think about it and we can get caught in reaction to it. Sometimes we can even project into the future with some imagined harm that, that hasn't happened. It doesn't have a basis in reality. I remember this, it's been a while, but I remember at times in my life coming up with these imagined scenarios of someone harming someone I loved or some innocent person, some innocent creature, and, and getting really angry about it, getting very self-righteous, indignant, you know, and picturing myself riding to the rescue or something, getting all caught in this and forgetting in the moment that it was just a complete fabrication, just this projection into some possible scenario in the future. But it feels so good, to, this strong, righteous anger can feel very good. It's very seductive because we feel justified. We're right. We're righting a wrong or something. Or sometimes there's impersonal situations that we take personally as an attack or a personal affront. An example I've used in talking about this that I think is really a good one. I guess it was last year when there was this volcano erupting in Iceland. And I remember seeing news reports of people who'd been stranded by this. And, and they're getting very angry about it as though, you know, it was directed at them personally, even though, you know, the, the airports were shut down for their safety. But they, as though, the vol- you know, it was a volcano erupting. But as though it were doing it to them somehow, and this this anger, this aversion arising. So if we can if we can bring mindfulness when this arises and, and name it and know what it is, and you know try to catch it sooner if possible before it's gotten too strong, it's harder to to deal with it when it's really when we're totally caught. But if we can catch it and see that it's there name it, bring mindfulness to it, how it manifests. Feel it in the body, feel it in the mind, in the heart. This is the key to working with it. And, and it's important to, sometimes we get, we get really can get caught in judging aversion or some way that we're averse to, we have aversion to our aversion. 
we get caught in an endless regression, you know, aversion to the aversion we have for our ill will, something like this, where it's endless, endless regressive pattern. And sometimes there's another emotion or mind state that's constellated in, in, in cases like this, you know, where we something that we might not see that can be feeding it. You know, we might be aware of feelings of anger and not notice that there is a feeling of hurt or loss that's under there. And it's, it's this unseen energy that sometimes is feeding the, the aversion. So sometimes to bring a little more investigation, see, see more clearly the whole picture, what's really going on there. And sometimes this, this anger, this quality of aversion of anger, it can feel like a source of strength and can be, we can get hooked by it feel motivated by it. And I've, I've heard people say, if I wasn't angry, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do things. You know, feeling that, that they use their anger, that anger serves in this way to, to motivate us. Or sometimes we can use it to mask feelings of fear or powerlessness. It may give us some feelings of strength, but it takes a toll. I think there's a high price when we use anger in this way can take its toll in terms of our health and well-being and in terms of openness and ease in, term, in the way that we relate in the world. Because when we're using it this way, then we're relating, we're, we're adopting this adversarial posture. It's us against the world. So compassion would be a much, a much healthier alternate source of motivation in our lives. It doesn't exact this, this high price, this toll. If we turn to suffering in the world and, and compassion, this care and concern to alleviate suffering, a much healthier source of energy. The simile for freedom from ill will is, is described as as recovering, having recovered from a serious illness or disease, overcoming sickness. So ill will is a kind of sickness in the heart, dis-ease. It can be helpful sometimes, if, especially if our ill will is outwardly directed at a situation or another person to see who's really suffering where what's really happening there. We see that it's that we're the ones who are getting burned by the heat of this anger. We're the ones of resentment. We're the ones who are suffering in that. This can help us to let go of this. We see, see how it's harming us. And sometimes it's useful to really substitute something wholesome as an antidote. There are times when it can be useful to, to actually intentionally turn the the mind, the heart towards loving kindness as a, as a remedy, substituting the wholesome, beautiful quality of metta for this aversive state. Then the third hindrance, sloth and torpor, interesting words, we don't use them. They have this archaic sound, I think. Don't go around saying, I'm feeling slothful. Today, or you seem to be consumed by torpor this afternoon. 
It's, I looked them up. It's an interesting to see the, the dictionary definition. Sloth is defined as a disinclination to work or exert oneself, as indolent, indolence or laziness. And torpor is a state of being dormant or inactive, temporary loss of all or part of the power of sensation or motion, sluggishness or stupor. So this hindrance of sloth and torpor, often its manifestation is some version of a kind of sleepiness, but sometimes it's this lazy, more stubborn, indolent quality can be strong as well. It can be a sleepiness or this feeling, I don't want to do it, it's too hard, I can't do it. It's kind of stubborn, sticky quality. And when it's really strong, I've certainly experienced this kind of torpor of, of this stupor, this almost dormant state where I feel like, you know, I couldn't open my eyes to save my life when it's really strong. It's, it can really feel impossible to rouse oneself. So there's, there's often it's born of one of three causes, this, this uh, sleepy dullness, sloth and torpor. Sometimes we actually are tired and we need rest and, and the sleepiness can come on um, due to that. And this often happens at the start of a period of retreat where we, we don't realize how exhausted we are from the busyness of our lives and all that we're having to deal with. And, and there's such a huge energetic shift when we come into retreat. We sometimes we forget this and we, we find ourselves struggling because we stop this momentum, you know, there's so much momentum going and then we hit the, come into the retreat and it's such a huge shift. So sometimes we actually do need to sleep. But often it's, it's a resistance to some unpleasant or difficult state of mind or, or something in the body that's difficult, something we don't want to feel or we don't have enough energy to be with it some un- particularly difficult or unpleasant emotion or, or physical sensation, as I said. And the sleepiness, this shutting down, can arise as a way of avoiding this. We might not see what it is. Sometimes we aren't aware of what it is that we might be avoiding. But there's this quality of, of withdrawing, of, of zoning out or falling asleep to avoid being with it, this retreat from difficulty. Sometimes we get fooled by this because it feels like we need to be kind. You know, we masquerades as compassion. Well, I, I need to, to be kind to myself. And sometimes there's an imbalance of energy and concentration that happens as we begin to really settle into greater stillness, greater calm and uh, collectedness of mind. And in this case, it, it comes on kind of gradually and we might not notice it. You know, we can find our minds becoming really tranquil and calm, very collected. We can find the concentration really growing. I know for myself, there's times when it just feels like, oh, this is, this is great, you know, enlightenment, here I come. But then I'm shading off and I'm nodding off. It shades off into this dull dull place is called sinking mind often, this quality that happens. Sometimes if we can catch it when we first notice it, when it's first coming on, if we can 
can catch it and bring some interest there, bring mindfulness there, and, and really see what, what it is. How is it manifesting in our mind, body, in our mind? Sometimes just that bit of investigative energy can shift it if we catch it soon enough. But often, by the time we figure out what's happening, it's too late for that. We might have to take stronger measures. So there's different things that are suggested classically in the text. Straightening one's posture, taking deeper breaths can help, or opening the eyes, the perception of light. Dispel, said to dispel this dullness in the mind. Certainly standing up, less likely to fall asleep when we're standing, although it's not unheard of. And there's a classic remedy of pinching or pulling on the earlobes. I try that. I've, I've done it. Sometimes it kind of helps. <laughs> or, you know, if at other times, um, getting some fresh air or fast walking or running, splashing cold water on our faces. And often in the text, it's looking at um, food and, and moderation is food. Uh, moderation in terms of food is often suggested. Um, and on retreat, you know, we're not burning as many calories usually. And sometimes we have habits around food, especially maybe in the evenings. We can look and see how much do we really need. This can really make a big difference. It's not to say that we, we, we do want to eat. You know, we need to, to uh, take care of ourselves. But sometimes we don't need as much as we think. And, and this can uh, shift this energy. And, you know, last, not necessarily least, there's graceful surrender. And sooner or later we do usually wake up. And I found it really interesting to see how the mind can shift just in one mind moment from being completely lost in dull sleepiness to wide awake. Just in, in one mind moment this can happen. It's interesting to see how this shift can come. And the simile for freedom from this, when this is abandoned, sloth and torpor, it's likened to being released from prison, is the simile that's given. Feeling this getting out of the prison of dullness. And I think it seems that sometimes we have at different times in our practice, maybe, or because of our temperament, you know, we have a hindrance of, of choice, one that seems to show up more often. Sloth and torpor seems to be mine. And, uh, and earlier in my practice, I, I would struggle with it. I'd really fight it. I hated it. I really had a lot of aversion to this. It would arise a lot. And I would uh, really battle against it. And, and at a certain point, I realized that, that what I was doing was cultivating aversion in, by battling it. That this really wasn't that good of a strategy. And it, and, um, you know, sometimes I might raise my energy a bit, but it really wasn't, um, wasn't working. It would leave a feeling of tightness, constriction, contraction. So it's much better to try to bring some interest there to, to try other gentler methods. I've just noticed over time that I just don't struggle with it in the same way. And that's actually been a good thing. And the fourth of these hindrances is restlessness and worry. There's different patterns of regret, agitation, worry that manifest with this hindrance. 
And it, it's some version of a, an excess of energy, you could say. There's not enough stillness or calm, whether it's worry in the mind or our energy in the body. There's not enough calm, not enough concentration or stillness, you could say, to hold it. And so it spills out and runs over, like that description of the bowl of water that's whipped by winds, the mind, the heart swirled up into an agitated state. And it can get really strong. And, and sometimes we feel like we're going to crawl out of our skin. And um, I remember early days in my practice feeling it this way, this unbearable excess of energy as though I, I was going to explode or die if I didn't move. Sometimes it comes in the mind, not so much in the body. And the body can seem calm and serene, and, and yet the mind is swirling with activity, a lot of thinking. I, these thought festivals, I call them, or uh, thought fests. They're not necessarily a problem, but they can be. But sometimes we can be mindful of that thinking, but sometimes it just is, it's too much. We can't contain it. Sometimes these obsessive thought patterns can come, turning things over and over, often feelings of regret or guilt. We turn them over and over. We can't let them go. different ways of what we call yogi mind that happens where we get fixated on something, make something that's relatively minor into a huge issue. And and we get like a dog with a bone, you know, if we notice our mind fixated on something, it's a good sign that maybe this is happening. And sometimes it comes if we're making, striving too hard in our practice, we can be making too much effort, trying to make something happen can bring this restlessness at times. So it's really useful to really name this, bring mindfulness to this quality, name it, remind ourselves that it's born of causes and conditions. See that it's a few components there, you know, maybe a lot of thinking or worrying in the mind, tension, tightness, vibration, the way it manifests in the body. And if we can open to it rather than struggling with it, we'll see that There's just a lot of energy, strong energy manifesting body or mind. And often if we we resist and struggle against it, it, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It just flares it up. So we can consciously try to relax the body, take some deeper breaths maybe. We can make a determined effort to rein the mind in. If there's this wild, rampant thinking, we can... Really try to connect and sustain the attention on the breath, for example, or the body. Although if we make too much effort, it can make things worse. So it's, it's good to just do it one breath at a time, you know, just this in-breath, just this out-breath, for example. Or sometimes it's really good to make our mind, it's like a, almost a visualization of making the mind, the heart, as big as possible. We give this energy a wide pasture. So it's not our whole universe, that it's, it's arising within a larger space. Sometimes we can bring the attention to the field of the whole body, the sitting posture, or, or to sound, or some object that lends itself to this spacious quality. So the freedom from restlessness, it's likened to becoming, uh, gaining release, buying release from slavery, being freed from slavery. And then the last of the hindrances is doubt. I'm going to have to 
race through this a bit. Skeptical doubt, it's often called. There's a certain kind of doubt that's actually really prized in, in the Buddha's teachings, a, a kind of inquiry or investigation. You could say the opposite of blind belief, which is very useful. And there's a, a famous sutta, the Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha is approached by these, the Kalamas, this group of people who says, well, this teacher has come and that teacher has come and this one says this and this one says that and, and they all talk a good line and how do we, uh, how do we know who to believe and now you're here and you're saying something else and uh, the buddha said you know i'm i'm making this it's a longer teaching but he said that one shouldn't believe anything just because a teacher says it or just because it's and a teacher of good reputation or something we've read or heard that that we put it into practice we see for ourselves what what is the benefit if there is benefit there so this kind of of doubt is, is useful where we, we actually do practice. We, we look and see, we put it into practice really fully and honestly, and we see for ourselves what, what works, what's useful. So it's not this kind of doubt. It's, uh, the hindrance of doubt is much more of a cynical, it's a cynical tone in a way you could say there's, there's no investigation, there's no seeing. It's not about that. It's, it's more a quality of, of writing things off that that it's not worth doing. It doesn't put it into practice. It's actually a mind state of uncertainty and indecision, as though we're standing in a crossroads and we just can't decide which way to go, and this way, that way, and, and the result is that we don't move at all. We can't decide. And when it's really strong in the mind and the heart, then the practice comes to a standstill because we, we're not willing even to, to do anything. We, we're not willing to take a chance, maybe we make a mistake, and we might learn something. We're frozen with this quality of indecision and confusion. We're always checking and wondering, afraid of making the wrong decision. Get paralyzed by it. And it's said to be the most dangerous of the hindrances because it has this paralyzing effect on us. You know, where our practice just comes to a halt. It can be doubt in different things, doubt in the practice, and what does this have to do with anything? Where is this leading? How could this lead to freedom? Doubt in the teachings or comparing different practices. You know, this is the wrong one. I should be doing another practice. I should really be doing Dzogchen practice. No, I'm more devotional. I should be singing bhajans. That would be better practice for me or something more fun at least. We have doubt in the teachers. They don't know what they're talking about or another one who we trust said something else and who's right. And maybe the worst way that it manifests is, is self-doubt, doubt in ourselves, doubt in our, our ability to do the practice at all. Feeling that it's not the right time or it's too hard or, or I'm doing it wrong this feeling of being caught in indecision, considering all these endless possibilities, you know, I should do this, I should do that, endless reasons why we can't practice. And because of when it's strong, then our worries can come true. It becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, this quality of doubt, where we don't practice and then, and then we don't learn anything and the practice doesn't go anywhere and so it 
it swirls into this cycle where we're caught and frozen. But it can be really difficult because it, it sounds like the voice of wisdom at times so much. It comes along saying, I'm the deepest truth. You know, this really is the wrong practice. This is the wrong time. And it seems reasonable and obvious and wise. And, and we don't recognize it. I know so often I've not recognized this because it, it sounds like, oh, it's the truth. I mean, that's its function is to fool us. And so it's really important to recognize and name doubt, I think, maybe more so than the others. <clears throat> you know, say, this is doubt. Doubt has arisen. It feels like this. And we cut through the grip of it a bit by naming it. If we can catch it before we're totally lost in it and under its spell, we can see that it's just born of of thoughts, of ideas in the mind, of thinking, series of thoughts. It can start to, we can start to get some freedom. We can start to lose its power. It doesn't seduce us into believing that, that it's telling us the truth. And freedom from, from doubt is likened to having safely crossed a vast wilderness or desert, arrived at a place of safety, is the way that freedom from this. I think that's a very a very apt description coming to safety out of this. In Buddhism, these hindrances, they're often personified as in the figure of Mara, the tempter Mara, who loses his power when he's recognized. And I think it's really useful, especially with doubt, to say, oh, this is the voice of Mara. This is not the voice of wisdom. You know, we shake our finger, I see you, Mara, in our minds. And it brings, uh, can often immediately bring some lightness and, and start to loosen this grip that, it, that the hindrance has on our heart. You know, sometimes Mara arrives with all his armies, this multiple hindrance attack, you know, where we're sleepy and restless at the same time, or we beset by aversion and desire, or they all five of them show up, you know. We hate the fact that we're completely filled with wanting, but we're too sleepy, restless, and, and doubtful to do anything about it. You know, and, and it's just over the top sometimes. And, and so it's good to make, make our mind really big then, really give a lot of space there. Maybe, maybe we need to actually take a walk, let the surroundings in outside, let the world in, find some ease in nature or some space or, even just having a sense of humor, cultivating patience when it's really just out of control that way. So the key is always mindfulness. That's our protection. That's, our, that's the best thing for us. If we're not aware of what's going on, if we don't recognize, name, see what's happening, Little or nothing can be done. We get lost in identification, contracted, swirled up into this, lost in delusion about it. But mindfulness has this incredible power to actually transform these things that are are seen as obstacles in practice. It can transform them into objects of our practice, objects of meditation. And these hindrances actually can become vehicles for understanding and liberation. This is good news. We don't have to. It's good to 
have them not arise, but they can actually serve us as vehicles if we attend to them carefully, name them, see them for what they are, see how they arise and pass. So I'll read a poem from Rumi called The Guest House, maybe familiar to some of you, to close the talk this evening. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He might be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever has come because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So we'll sit quietly for just a minute and let these words drift away and then... uh, I'll ring the bell and, and we'll end with chanting the, sh- uh, the verses of sharing and aspiration.